Welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, the place for ideas you can implement to achieve prosperity. You'll get insights from successful business people on how they do business better. You'll glean tactics on creating a life and business by choice because we interview real business people who've done just that. Now here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings and welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. Got a great program for you today because I got a great guest. He's a buddy of mine. His name is Bruce Turkell. You've heard him before on this very uh, uh, episode, I'm sorry, on this very podcast, talking about various stuff. He's the author of All About Them. All About Them is a book that he wrote a few years ago, and it very plainly points out that your business is not about you. It's about the people you serve. So he was going to do a follow-up to that book, he was, in fact, uh, contacted by his publisher and was told, hey, do a follow-up to that book because it's all about marketing. It's all about uh, reaching out to your customers and realizing that uh, the more you make your business about serving them, the better off your business will be. And he says, screw that. I'm not really interested in doing that because Turkel doesn't really think that you should just be like writing books based on what your publisher says. He, he wrote this book because of his own interest. This book is called is that all there is? Is that all there is? It dives into this thing that some of us are going through, probably more of us are going through now than were uh, 20 months ago because the whole COVID thing and maybe point in life, uh, age, makes you think, I've had a modicum of success. I'm doing okay, but what else is there? And so this book delves into that what is there beyond this? Is that I'm successful? I'm doing okay. But what else is there? So anyway, Brewster Kell's my buddy, and he's here to talk to us about not only his book, but about his life and uh, his, his deep questions about, is that all there is? Anyway, hey, buddy. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Damien. That was great. Uh, you know what? I don't do a lot of things well, but I introduced you well. So, I mean, there, there's that. All right. Did, so, I've, been uh, on a lot, I've been on a lot of podcasts and you can always tell the people who've actually done the research and read the book versus the people who say, so you wrote this book. Tell us about it. Right. <laughs> they, right. they have no idea uh, yes. what, it, what it is you've done. Katie Kirk, when she was uh, the host of the co-host of the Today Show. Incidentally, making three times what her co-host Matt Lauer made, and nobody ever brought that up with the, the whole uh, gender income thing. She made three times as much as Matt Lauer. She never. I don't. I don't think that Katie Kirk has read a book in her life. Uh, maybe not even the ones that she allegedly co-wrote herself. But she would always do that exact thing. Oh, so like this is really amazing. Like so, tell us about this book. And well, let, me, they, let me tell you a quick Katie Couric story. Katie Couric was actually a local newscaster here in Miami um, and a very good friend of mine, a guy named Brian Gadinsky, who went on to produce American Idol and America's Most Wanted. So a very successful producer was her producer when she was a local, a local anchor. Right, right. Um, then she went up to New York and she became a big star and he stayed in touch with her, of course. And when not all about them, but a previous book that I wrote came out, he sent it to her with a nice note. I was hoping she would interview me about the book. She didn't, but whatever. So when all about them came out, I said, hey, Brian, would you do me a favor? And would you send this to Katie Couric? And he said, well, why don't you just give her a ring? You know, she got your last book. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't mean anything. Right. He said, no, she'll remember. And so I called up, I, I got her service and I, you know, I told him, who this is. I'm friends with Brian from Miami. And I wrote that book. She called back. She remembered the book. She remembered me. Uh, you might recall, and maybe you don't, when I, when I 
got that award at the National Speakers Association. And I did a video of all these celebrities talking about me. She was on the video. So uh, I got to tell you, she was she did her research. She had an amazing memory and she was very, very friendly and helpful. She probably has actually read an excerpt from your book, as opposed to all the other authors that she had on her Today Show. Uh, I don't know that to be true or not. I just I got to say nice things about her because she was delightful to deal with. Uh, and, and one could also say that uh, in the day she had really nice legs, um, uh, which is why I always put the camera down here shooting. Anyway, let's talk about the fact that uh, you and me, before we start, we push the record button, are talking about the same thing. Uh, we like our life. We have a good life. We have created a good business. Um, we have a certain amount of wealth. And then you find yourself... And you, you, I think midlife crisis is arrogant. I think um, midlife crisis is self-absorbed. I think midlife crisis is, uh, as they say, you know, rich person problem. Um, You know, I didn't come from much. I I think it's arrogant to even talk about that. But it is valid to say, hey, I'm doing okay. But like, I'm wondering what else I should be doing. I'm wondering what else, what I should be excited about. Uh, What... uh, What's what's next? It's kind of what you're talking about here, right? Yeah. Um, and by the way, I don't know that that midlife crisis thing is necessarily uh, arrogant or presumptuous because we don't actually get to choose how we feel about things necessarily. I mean, yes, you could choose to be happy or not. I understand that. But, you know, when you're exposed to everything that we're exposed to to make a living to if you raise kids, if you take care of an aging parent, whatever it is, you kind of don't get to decide always how you feel about what's going on. Things are imposed on you. All of us are born with advantages and disadvantages. All of us have good luck and bad luck. So I'm not sure it's arrogant. I think, in fact, you might not like the term. And by the way, not knowing when you end when your life ends rather means you don't actually know where the mid is <laughs> 35. It could be 50. You just don't know. Uh, and there is the stereotype of a midlife crisis. And I'll tell you one day I was going to band practice. I play in a, in an R and B band, as you know, and uh, my wife said to me something, I told her I was going to band practice. And she said, that's okay, honey, you go run off to your little midlife crisis band. And I said, you know, babe, there's two kinds of midlife crisis. One is divorce, a 21 year old named Candy and a Ferrari. Right. The other is a bunch of middle-aged guys getting together, drinking a beer and playing music they liked in high school. And she said, yeah, go, go have fun, go have fun. So I think it really depends on what baggage you add to the word. But the bigger issue and why I didn't title the book Midlife Crisis, but is that all there is, is the concept that exactly the way you put it, you work hard to create something, you work hard to achieve something, you achieve it, it's a relative scale. I understand that. But you achieve it somewhere on the on the scale. And then you kind of look in the mirror and say, really? I mean, I remember when, when I was in business, when I ran my ad agency, I had a business partner. He ran the business. I did the creative and I was the outside guy. And I used to go out and pitch the business. And I would come home late at night, either from a flight or from, you know, driving up to Palm Beach or Lauderdale or whatever. And uh, he worked really long hours. So on my way home, I'd stop at the office. And Roberto would be at his desk and he'd say, so how'd it go? And I'd say, I have good news and I have bad news. And he'd say, okay, tell me the good news. 
And I'd say, well, I met with Damian Mason. He runs this big ad company. They want to hire us. They have a big budget and we need to get started tomorrow. And he'd say, great. And I could tell in his head, he was already estimating how much work. He's, he's already running the revenue. He's already, he's exactly. already, he's already spending the revenue in his head, right? Yep. And then he'd say, oh yeah, but what, what's the bad news? And I'd say, well, I just got back. I met with Damian Mason. He has this big ad company and they want to hire us. They have a big budget and we have to start tomorrow. Because I already knew what was going to happen. I knew the dance we were going to do. I knew what would happen. We'd start with the CEO and the, he or she loved us and had big ideas. But then the little bureaucratic people would get involved and they'd start picking apart. Oh, I don't know that we can do that. And, you know, all the stuff that comes when you run a business. And it doesn't matter what the business is. I knew what would happen on the client side. I knew what would happen on the employee side. I knew what would happen on the vendor side. Not necessarily bad, Damien, but all of it. I've been to that dance before, you know, and at yeah, some point so, you go. So really. You you and me uh, both uh, had this point when we did some business together. You said the good news is we got the revenue and the business. The bad news is now we got to do the business, meaning we got to deal with the client. We got to go through all this thing. And it's not because you you don't want to work. It's because there's all of the shit that goes along with it. Well, you know, because we work together. I love doing the work. I love when you and I would bang out ideas and come up with things and we would disagree about it. I love that part of it. But nobody lets you do your job, right? They want to let you do your job. There's the politics. There's the process. Just talking last night about uh, uh, something over beers with my friends uh, about an event that we put on my wife and me and some other people. And I said, you know what? I am not a process person. I'm a promotion person. I'm a product person. Uh, I'm a profit oriented person, but I'm freaking hate the idea of the process. And so half of what happens once you get business is that then somebody ties you up in the process and it's like, okay, no, is there going to be three, is there going to be three phone calls a day to this person? Like, I, fuck, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, there's, there's that thing. Um, you got out of the ad agency business and you were successful at that. And then you probably asked yourself, is that all there is? When did this first question, when did this come to you? When did the thing come up to you? Um, you're 63 years old right now. When did you start saying, is that all there is? Well, I started saying it long before I did anything about it. Um, so probably in my mid to late 40s, maybe my early 50s, I didn't write it down when it happened. But the process, to use your word, the process was interesting because I had friends of mine coming to me, asking me about, how I had set my life up the way I had. I mean, they saw what I was doing. I ran an ad agency. I was an art director and a copywriter and I would shoot commercials and I played in bands. So I would do the music and the way they saw it, I was living this very creative life and they were lawyers or doctors or, you know, all very successful professionals. And uh, they wanted to figure out how can I put more of that creativity into my life? And I had no answer for them. But after a while, I would say to them, you know, I don't know what you should do, but I will tell you that a number of people have this issue. So it seems to me being a marketing guy, I see a pattern and it's in the zeitgeist of, of the world we live in. If I were you, I would keep a journal. I would keep a journal of these thoughts you're going through and what you do because others are going to want to know about it. And I don't know how many times I had to hear that story and I had to say the same thing. Well, I don't know, but if I were you, I'd keep a journal before I was honest enough to with myself to say, schmuck, they're telling you your story. I mean, that's how you feel. 
And I actually like writing books. So why don't I keep a journal and why don't I write a book? And so the book part of it, because you and I have talked about writing books before, the book part of it, yes, I, I love that you do that. The book part of it um, became the catalytic mechanism for me because I would rather sit and write the book than actually do the other things I needed to do. I don't suffer from that problem of not knowing what to write, not liking to write. I sit down and write, and I don't even write with my brain. I believe I write with my fingers. Once my fingers start typing, the ideas just come. So for me, that was a joy. The downside was dealing with all the other things I had to deal with, which was I had big group of employees, most of whom I loved and I tried to take very good care of. I had a business partner. We had been very good business partners for years and years, 30 years. Um, we had real estate. I mean, you know, there was all that stuff that had to be dealt with as well. But coming up with this idea and pursuing this idea was just an absolute joy. Yeah. So um, you, you think you started asking the question as all there is. And, and again, it's not that you're arrogant. You know, it's the old thing of, uh, I remember once I watched a documentary um, about the Reagans and one of the Reagan kids was almost bitching uh, about how his parents were so uninventive that every year they brought the same pony trainer to their birthday party. Like, you know, there, there are children that never had a birthday party thrown for them and let alone had a pony trainer come and give pony rides at their party in a tent in their backyard in an affluent neighborhood stop your bitching. It's, you know, it's the old thing of uh, all my gripes, uh, all my gripes at the country club kind of a thing. So you're not, you're not being arrogant when you ask the question, it's really more of you almost like uh, you want to, you want to make sure you're still being productive. It's almost like uh, almost the opposite. You're like going, Hey, I'm not complaining. I realize I've got it good. I sold my ad agency. Uh, I'm in my fifties, whatever the thing should be. Um, but is this what there is? And, and what else do I do? In other words, it's almost like you're looking for, you want it, you are motivated. It's just, you're wondering what to be motivated about. Is that really well, what I'll about? add another word. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. You use the word, you want to be productive. I think the other thing is you want to be relevant mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there's a lot of us who run businesses to your point about, I, I guess it was Ron Reagan is who it sounds like, but um, one, one of those bitchy little Reagan kids. <laughs> <laughs> they brought the same old pony trainer. You know, you can keep running your business the way you've been running it. And yeah, some businesses become irrelevant. We all know the buggy whip stories, but um, the chances are you can keep doing what you were doing and you'll do fine. But how long are you going to be willing to put up with that? Sounds like my dog wants to uh, go outside. It's okay, sweetheart. Just give me a second. She doesn't understand about podcasts. I don't think. Um, so, you, you know what you're talking about, though, is, is again, it's not it's, it's that you it's not it's not that you don't want to do something. It's about what do you do? What 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 thing what thing trips your trigger? Is that really how, how much longer are you going to be doing the same thing? I mean, you and I both speak at conferences. That's how we met, in fact, at the National Speakers Association. And you've heard people say it's easier to find a new audience than write a new speech. And right. you and I both know people, men and women, who have been giving the same speech for 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe they, instead of saying Reagan, they would say uh, Biden, you know, right. if they're talking right. about the president. But other than uh, the, something like that, they're giving the same talk. 
Right. I was never that guy. I, you know, I'm more like an improv speaker and I know you are as well, where I have to come up with new stuff just because I bore myself. The audience has never heard it before. They're thinking, wow, that's brilliant. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I say this one more time, I'm going to stick a fork in my eye. So it's, it's, it's not just productivity. I think it's also relevance and relevance is a self-directed measure, right? Because you could be relevant to your audience doing exactly what you did forever, or you could say, but that doesn't work for me. I need to. Yeah. So, so like uh, I used to do my political comedy show and my political comedy show had to change every night based on whatever was in, you know, I read the USA today, which is a dumber, dumbed down media source, but that's also where my audience was. And that's also where you can get all, all I needed was a headline and a punchline. Right. You know, and so I would change those out all the time. And back then I was pursuing the money. I needed to make the money. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm building my building myself up here. But if I was still doing that today, I guess is where I'm going with this. If it was still that I on the airplane read USA Today to get a headline to create three punchlines. Uh, I'd probably be just like, God damn, is this it? <laughs> You're probably be like, uh, is that all there is? is that hey, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to stand up, open the door and let, let Lucy out because yeah, she's let now. Lucy, let Lucy she, out. But I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right back. Come on. Yeah, you let Lucy out. She's good. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, dear listener and viewer, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is the book. His name is Bruce Turkel. If you listen to any of my stuff, you know that he's my buddy. We were uh, involved in some business together. You can go to Bruce Turkel. If they want to find you, it's BruceTurkel.com. Yeah. That's and that's it. Turkel. That's T-U-R-K-E-L. T-U-R-K-E-L. BruceTurkel.com. All right. So anyway, yeah. So uh, it's it's kind of like the, the reality is... Uh, it's not about midlife. It's not about any of that. It's that there's a person right now that's listening to this on their way to work, Bruce, and they're saying, you know, those guys, those guys have a good point. Uh, I've wondered that myself. Uh, I like, I don't, I don't, I don't hate my life. I don't hate my job. I don't hate my spouse. I don't hate what I do, but is this it? Is this <laughs> well, it? I'll tell you, um, if you, I mean, I interviewed, as you know, I interviewed a lot of people to write this book. A whole bunch of people in here. The one I read was about a musician guy. He actually basically was finding his, his, his happiness and his music as a, a side gig. But oh, uh, that was, uh, was that Rick Beato? Rick. Yeah. And he's got, what a business he has. Check out uh, rickbeato.com. He's really pivoted beautifully. Um, so when I interviewed the people and I, uh, to your point, I put 14 of their stories in the book. A lot of people told me that if they actually did the work to think back to why they were doing what they were doing today, it wasn't their idea in the first place. They were doing what their parents wanted them to do or what their grandparents wanted them to do, or maybe a school counselor who said, you know, Damien, you really have a gift for this. And that's what they went out and did. Or a coach who said, you know, look at you and you'd be better on the basketball court than in the football field. And then they did that. Um, Ed Wasserman, who was just retired as the Dean of journalism at Berkeley, he tells a story about what he calls incremental rationality. And he talks about how you think you're on these, these, these well thought out journeys in your life to go do something. So you go to a particular school or you move to a city for a special job. He said, and then you sit down 
And the girl on the desk next to you is really cute. And two years later, you're married with a kid and she's, you know, your, your second kid's on the way and you go, oh my God, how did that happen? And it makes a lot of sense that, that a lot of the things that we look back and stitch together in some sort of cogent narrative actually didn't happen that way. And therefore, we're not necessarily in a place where if we had had our druthers, this is what we'd be doing. But to your point, you're making good money, you've put your kids through school, or you've got a lovely home, or you've done this, or you've done that, and you're going, well, yeah, what right do I have to bitch? And it's not about bitching. It's about when you wake up at three in the morning chewing your cheek, what is it that you're thinking about time after time after time? And if there's something there, I think you kind of owe it to yourself to explore a little bit and figure out what can you do about it? Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. Needless to say, there's nothing you can do about the first one. And, you know, depending on how, how navel gaze, gazery you are or how spiritual you are, maybe you'll come up with a second one. I don't really think so. But at least it's worth thinking about. It's worth pursuing. Yeah, by the way, uh, brilliant marketer, Mark Twain. Uh, most people just think he was a brilliant writer. He was an average writer and a brilliant marketer. Um, uh, okay, so he asked the question, uh, the, second, the, second, the second most important day is the, when you ask yourself why. Um, you figure out why. Now, again, the risk of sounding like you're self-absorbed, it's not that you're self-absorbed. It's that you have already done a lot of stuff that was not about self at all. It was about service. You, you know, you, you created your business. I created my business um, uh, certainly for preservation of self and then for self wealth and self, uh, you know, uh, motivation, but also it was always about doing service. There's well, I could, I, if you don't mind me interrupting you, I could, I could, I could point that out. I, I studied design and art in school. I have an art degree and a design degree. I went to New York. I worked in an ad agency, moved back home uh, and eventually opened an ad agency. We became a brand management firm, blah, 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 and grew it and grew it. But when I was in the process of extracting myself from the business, someone asked me a question and they said, what are you proudest of? You've run a business for 32 years. What are you proudest of? And, you know, I would have thought that I, well, we won this big design award or we had done this job uh, and we for this organization and we fed these kids or we changed the voting process in Florida or we whatever. I would have thought it was one of the. The, the function of what we did, that we created these great ads, we created these great logos, we did all this great stuff. But the only thing that stuck in my head was I made payroll for 30. I never missed a payroll. I made payroll for 32 years and I made the, the subs, I paid all the taxes. And I'm not the business guy. I had a business partner, but I was responsible for bringing in the income. And you wouldn't think I care about that at all. But the more I thought about it, I provided income for all these people who worked for us. And a hundred people went home and fed their kids because right. you never missed it. And then someone said, Oh, you made money every year you were in business. I said, are you kidding me? No. Sometimes I had to use my savings, tap my, uh, my, my home equity, but I always made payroll. That's your point. The service was there. No, maybe we weren't feeding the homeless or doing whatever, but we were employing people, helping people enjoy the, the American dream. Yeah. Service was there. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's you not, know, I don't think this, this, this quest to figure out what you want to do next is selfish at all. It can be, but I don't think it has to be. 
Sure. Actually, when you ask the question, is that all there is, you're almost asking like, all right, what more can I do? And that's, that's a good question. Like, what more can I do? What more can I do? Uh, what, what can I do? I was, uh, propositioned, uh, as you talked about just a few years ago, like, Hey Mason, could you be retired? And I said, probably, I mean, I had to change things around. Uh, but what, what does that look like? Uh, okay, sure. Right. Yeah. You can scale things around and rescale, unscale, downscale, whatever the hell the thing is and, uh, be retired. And I said, what do you do then? Because people say, well, you could volunteer. I'm like, do you think that my highest and best use is ladling out soup uh, at a homeless kitchen? And I'm not being mean about the homeless kitchen. It's the reality is, isn't it better for me to run my business and then look at all the people that get spin off from my business? All of a sudden, I'm throwing money at this person and I'm paying this company to do this and I'm creating this thing and I'm buying this and I'm doing this. There's a whole lot of economic multiplier index that goes on by a person that asked the question, is that all there is? And thinking I can keep doing more. But one of the things, you know, you said ladling soup, that's not your only option. My father sold his business in his early 30, uh, 50s. My dad was very successful. And um, he worked harder after retirement than he had running this business because when he went to see if he should, you know, what kind of volunteering he should be doing, what he figured out was the nonprofits he was talking to, they were really good at their mission whether it was feeding, ladling soup to your point or providing homes or whatever it was, job training. He said, but what they didn't know how to do is actually run businesses. Mm -hmm. He said they didn't manage for results. They didn't understand how you have to take in more than you spend, you know, all the things that you need in a successful business. So he started a program at the University of Miami called the Center for Nonprofit Management, where he taught nonprofits how to be successful businesses, not how to be better at what they cared about, right. uh, curing a disease or saving the oceans or whatever. He said, they know how to do that. What they don't know how to do is manage for results. So you could take your skill sets, what has made you as successful as you've been in the ag world, and you could say, okay, how can I use what I know to make the world a better place and to fulfill myself? There's lots of different ways to do it. Uh, again, I learned this by the people that I interviewed who all said, yeah, my life pivoted. I had to change some for good reasons. Sold my business for a ton of money, uh, had some other big success, but lots of them for not such good reasons. People who got divorced, got disease, uh, all terrible things happened. And then they said, I need to figure something else out. And a lot of them were able to take what they knew how to do and move it into new areas that they found very fulfilling. All right. So your favorite part about the book, is it the interviews with the 14 people or it's more than that? It's more than 14 people because I, I, I counted them here. There's more than 14 people. But is it the interviews with those people where you got to hear their story? Uh, is that the favorite part of it? Favorite part to write or favorite part to read? Favorite part to read. My favorite part to read. Yeah. When I was uh, just out of college, I remember I was in my car and I had never listened to national public radio. I was just playing with the dial and that show all things considered came on and they told yeah. a story about something I had no interest in. I'm going to make it up because I don't even remember, but it was like, it was like why aluminum cans are manufactured the way they are. And three or four minutes into it, it was fascinating. And then it ends. And I remember thinking, Oh, I want to hear more about it. And they said, next up, we're going to talk about shale oil discoveries in Venezuela. And I thought, I don't care about that at all. And then they came on and three or four minutes into it, it was like, oh my God, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then it ended in the next story. 
My favorite part of the book is you read about someone's life, the 20 ish pages about someone's life and someone you didn't know about. You didn't know about what they did. You couldn't care less about them. At the end of those 20 pages, you want to know more, more, more about this person, but it's over. And now there's a new person and you think, but I don't care about that person. Right. And then people tell me five, six pages into it. Oh my God. They think it's the most interesting thing they ever read. And by the way, those are not my stories. Those are stories other people gave me that I simply cleaned up a little bit. Yeah. So I read about Rick Beto and I thought that's really interesting because he was a successful guy. And then it essentially, like, I think the, the story there is that music was kind of his salvation. That's this thing. That's his, it's his thing that is, uh, keeps me going. It's the reason he, he, right. he, he keeps going. All right. Uh, what else do I need to know? Do these people that are listening to this need to know about? Is that all there is? Um, well, the interest. Yeah. The interesting thing first is they need to buy it. First, they need to buy it. But yes, also, you need to buy it. You can go to Amazon. Is that all there is? Bruce Turkel, please go buy it. Please and you'll see my it. and you'll see my review on Amazon. A review. Which Damien I wrote a good one. Finally up. I, I wrote a glowing review. So I hope they finally put it up there. Yes. Tell people about it. Um, the biggest compliment I get when people read it is they tell me, it feels like you wrote this for me. And the reason is because I'm a marketing guy. So I looked at the demographics of what people are looking for. Um, but the, the thing I want to share is that I did this because I wanted to write the book. What's the old saying? We teach what we need to learn. This was something I was wrestling with and I wrote the book. But it's now become a whole bunch of other things because I've now built a website around it. Um, I'm doing podcasts of the people I interviewed and then more. I'm doing some consulting. I'm writing. I'm already 150 pages into the next book, into the sequel. Um, I didn't see this book as the life change. You know, I just saw it as something I was documenting. So you never know where these opportunities are going to come from. You just got to stay open to them. I like it. I like it a lot. By the way, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk when we stop recording. But uh, the point is, everybody always tries to pretend they're changing lives. Uh, and, and, you know, the reality is this one actually kind of is more like you asking the question. And then somebody's going to read it and say, you know what? Damn, I was dealing with that myself. And so that's kind of where I am uh, on the very topic. So. His name is Brewster Kell. My name is Damian Mason. This is the Do Business Better podcast. If you want to find out more about Brewster Kell, you can go on Amazon and buy Is That All There Is. It looks like this. It's it, it's it's got a funky cover. But anyway. Uh, well, see, because you haven't done this. <sighs> look at that. I'm going to hold it up. And if so you anyway, look behind me, you can see, two of them. see what those two look like. If you put one next to another, you get Is <laughs> That All get, There Is. If you buy two books, you can actually make one uh, cover. That's right. All right. So go to BrewsterKell.com or go on wherever you buy your stuff and pick up this book. Uh, if you want to find him, if you want him to be a consultant, if you want uh, to reach out to a smart dude that knows a lot about business and about life, and he's a little bit about branding and advertising as well because he ran an agency for 30-some years, uh, you can find him at BrewsterKell.com. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. I enjoyed it. No, we always talk, like talking to each other. Sometimes we record it. All right. Till next time, this is a better podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of Do Business Better, please share it. And be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear and Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com. Know someone who'd make a great guest? Send us a message. We're always looking for compelling stories and business lessons our listeners can benefit from. Thank you.